Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, we typically give a partner update for one of our ministry partners once a month. And if you were keeping score, we're behind this month because we flaked out and didn't do it last week. Uh, But we have an update to give to you today uh, regarding those that we support in Cork, Ireland, Mike and Rachel Neglia. And I will not give that update, though. Mike is actually stateside and here with us this morning. And so Mike's going to give an update about how they're doing, but then also Mike is going to open scripture. I did some false advertising last week saying that we would be in Psalm 23 today. I didn't know Mike was in the States. And surprise, surprise, he texted me Monday morning. And I said, well, I'd love it if you taught then. So Psalm 20 today... Psalm 23 next week, but Psalm 20 today, if you want to pull out your Bible, and you can welcome Mr. Neglia. Thanks, Trevor. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, Yeah, delighted. I was talking earlier. Um, I was really looking forward to attending Olive Branch Church, and you know, it's rare to have a, a Sunday off, and there's nothing better than on your day off to do some work, but uh, there's no better work than being able to open God's word together. So we'll, we'll be in Psalm 20. Uh, Trevor said I could talk about whatever I want, as long as it's not Philemon or Psalm 23. And so I said, how about Psalm 20? <laughs> so we're going to be in Psalm 20. Um, yeah, I think I, I got a chance to uh, speak here. I was, it was a year ago, uh, time Time's confusing, but in, in, in the past, and you were, everyone was wearing masks, um, so that must have been about a year or two ago. Um, and I think the last time that I was here, at the beginning, I tried to wax eloquent uh, about how uh, Trevor has been a positive influence in my life for more than a decade, and uh, I spoke about that. This time, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about the team, uh, the leadership team at Olive Branch, and how I've gotten to to know uh, Trevor and and comparison, or sorry, comparison, in connection uh, with Danny, and then also Olivia, spending time with them at a leadership conference um, earlier in the year. Guys, I have not seen such like good communication and healthy interactions and like behind the scenes health of a leadership team in a long in a long time so like you guys are in good hands uh praise the lord you want to honor the leadership of this church um i also want to say um thank you so much because you were praying for us in on september 18th as your partner highlight and i know that you as a church invest in and believe in the power of prayer uh, for other people. Uh, we call this intercessory prayer. And so you prayed for our ministry and you prayed for my family. And I do want to just say thank you. Uh, the Lord has answered some of those prayers. And I'll tell you about it in a few minutes. That's called foreshadowing. <laughs> so I've selected Psalm 20 because it's a, it's a, a psalm about prayer and it's a psalm about praying for other people. And since you evidently believe in that, I thought there'd be nothing better to share than this. And of course, what should I do before I preach about prayer than pray about preaching? So join me, please. 
So Lord, as we as we sang just a minute ago, um, we exalt thee. And I pray that as we just journey through a few verses in the Old Testament, that it would be uh, not, it wouldn't just be a historical lecture, uh, that it wouldn't be a nerd rant. Um, we pray that it would be um, an act of exaltation, that together with one voice, um, I've even borrowing the language of the psalm, that we would be exalting thee. So Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I don't know if you take notes during sermons or not. I don't know if you like start taking notes at the beginning of the sermon and then you kind of peter out towards the end. If you're my guy, if that's what you do, write down this sentence. Here is the, this is the only sentence you need, all right? Uh, summarizing Psalm 20, and what I would like to communicate this morning is this sentence. Uh, Miss Ruth, there's a slide. This psalm is about praying for, to our trustworthy God on behalf of our beleaguered and embattled brothers and sisters. Praying to our trustworthy God on behalf of our beleaguered and embattled brothers and sisters. That's the one sentence. You could write that down and you could be done. There's more coming, but everything that I'm going to say is going to be connected to this idea. Praying to our trustworthy God on behalf of the beleaguered and the embattled. This psalm is a unique psalm. Once you get next Sunday to Psalm 23, you're going to see kind of more of the, the classic understanding of what most of the psalms are, which is David writing poetry, expressing his heart to his God. Uh, it's an individual uh, laying awake at night, concerned and pouring out his heart. The last time I was here, I think I spoke on Psalm 3, which was David uh, sleeplessly pouring out his heart about some concerns in his family. Um, this one is kind of the opposite. This is not an individual praying about his problems or an individual praying about a group of people. What this is, is this is the nation of Israel praying for one person. This is the people of Israel gathered together facing their king who is about to go to battle on their behalf. And this is like, perhaps you could picture them with their arms raised and like a benedictory blessing praying these words. So imagine the king ready to go in battle, the people in front of them, perhaps led by the Levites, and they're praying this prayer. Let's listen to this. May the Lord answer you in your day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. 
So here's the, the first uh, lesson that we see in this. Prayer is not only for our personal requests, but prayer is also a powerful resource for the needs of others. If you have that sentence, this is praying to our faithful God on behalf of the beleaguered and the embattled. So they're praying for somebody who's about to step into a literal, physical battle. We pray for you. Now, with prayer, oftentimes we pray for our own needs. And brothers, sisters, that's a good thing. (laughs) Jesus taught us to do that. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Uh, we're, We're supposed to pray for our daily bread and to forgive us our trespasses. So it's a good thing to pray for yourself. Sometimes because nobody else is, so you might as well. And nobody knows your needs more than yourself. And so Jesus invites us, and it's a healthy, good practice to pray for our needs because we know it more than anything else. In addition to this, God also invites us to pray for the needs of others. We could say this, he gives us the gift of prayer for us to not hoard to ourselves, but to share with others. I like study Bibles. Do you know why I like study Bibles? Because about every single verse in the Bible, you could like preach a whole sermon, right? So you could preach forever. You could write a whole volume on everything. Study Bibles are so good because they're so concise. It's just like one short sentence. And I don't know if you noticed, preachers are not concise people, okay? And so I love looking into study Bibles to say not everything that could be said about a single verse, but what is a simple way of understanding it? The Full Life Study Bible uh, gives a definition of intercessory prayer this way. What does it mean to pray for somebody else? And Miss Ruth, there's a slide. It's holy, believing, persevering prayer, whereby somebody pleads with God on behalf of another who desperately needs God's intervention. Uh, this is what intercession means. And I like that word. It's, it's they need God's intervention. And so it's like, man, Lord, so-and-so needs your help. Bill needs your help. Help him, Lord. He needs it. So intercession is the act of like intervening on behalf of somebody else who's in difficulty or who's in trouble. It's pleading or petitioning, not your case, but their case. It's asking God to do good to somebody other than yourself. And just as much as Jesus prayed for the disciples that he could see with his eyes and the disciples that would come after them, that's you and me, we're also invited to pray for the needs of others. We see this throughout the the whole of scriptures. Think of Abraham interceding and pleading for the sinful inhabitants of Sodom. Think of Moses praying for and intervening for the sinful Israelites as they wander through the desert. Think of Samuel, that prophet in the Old Covenant, as he kind of gives his retirement speech uh, before he steps off and there's this succession plan for for the next one. He says, you know what? I'm no longer going to be prophesying or in this office of leadership of prophecy, but here's this. 1 Samuel 12, there's a verse. Moreover from me, far be it that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with your whole heart. Consider the good things, the great things that he has done for you. Samuel says, I've been praying for you this whole time, and I'm retiring 
but it would be wrong of me to stop this. That's how important he believes that is. We have the people of Israel praying for their king. Hear this. There's, uh, I love the book of Nehemiah. If you're familiar with it in the Old Testament, he has this, this burden for the dignity and safety of ancient Jerusalem to be restored. It had, it had fallen into disrepair and disrepute and disgrace, and he wanted it to flourish once again. And so before he goes about his plan of fixing things, Nehemiah chapter 1 is he has a burden for prayer. And of course, in the New Testament, we have Paul, who fills his letters with detailed descriptions of his prayers for the churches that he planted, for their character, for their behavior, for their wisdom, and for their witness. He prays for them. Here's some things to learn about intercessory prayer. It's joining into the experience of somebody else. Here's the thing. God is going to call some of us, some of the time, to do more than merely pray. However, God invites all of us to at least pray. I think even the act of praying, thinking of somebody else, praying for them by name, entering into their life and their needs, I think that's an experience. It's an act of love and care for something else, someone else. I I listened to uh, the sermon last week on the Olive Branch podcast, and let me just say, boy, it was good. And also, I heard that forgiveness is a very godly act. To forgive is truly divine. And we get to be divine and godlike in forgiving. I would say, in addition to that, and praying, considering someone's deepest needs and taking time out of our schedule and our concerns and to pray for somebody else is a godly act. It often leads to other godly acts, but it is good and godly in and of itself. Nehemiah had his heart broken for the people of Jerusalem in prayer, and then God used him to answer those prayers himself. Oftentimes, we pray for other people in times of physical crisis. If you're ever online, and if you ever see pray for blank trending, it means something bad happened there. Whether it's a natural disaster or a human tragedy, if people are saying pray for Point Loma, pray for fall, pray for, it's like what bad thing happened? And yes, we should pray. But more than that, there's deeper, richer, enriching, strengthen them, Lord. Paul prays a lot for the churches that he planted and the people that he loved. I don't think he ever prays for their physical safety. He prays that they would know the love of God. He prays that they would walk confident in their calling. He prays that they would know what, they'd have wisdom to how to act in that time and stage that they're at. I challenge you to find a time when he prays for their safety. Now listen, hey, I'm flying later today. You can pray for my safety all you want. Nothing against it. However, let's just not just leave this as a crisis management resource. Because here's the thing. Prayer is not just the spiritual equivalent or the Christian equivalent of sending good vibes. You ever heard that phrase? Uh, Oftentimes, maybe our our secular friends, uh, maybe even, even ourselves, something bad happens to somebody and you say, hey, I'm just sending you good vibes. Or hey, you know, um, I'm keeping you in my thoughts. Guys, I don't know what vibes are or like, that's better than nothing. Cool. Keep vibing for me, whatever. But like, 
prayer is more than just the Christian version of that. Usually when someone says, hey, I'm keeping you in my thoughts, it means this. I heard something bad happened, and I want you to know that you're not alone in this. And I don't demean that at all. But I'd say we have that and so much more. Because I believe, I'm of the opinion, that prayer actually kind of works. Um, here's, here's a verse. This is not the usual go-to verse about this, but I, I found this years ago in Hebrews chapter 13. At the end of Hebrews, the author says, I hope to visit you soon. And it's, it's there on the slide. And he says this, pray for us, for we're sure we have a clear conscience. I desire to act honorably in all things. I urge you more earnestly to do this in order that I might be restored to you the sooner. And I was like, wait a second. This anonymous theologian who, who wrote the book of Hebrews, they're saying that they want to come visit them face to face, and he's asking them to pray. And, and in his mind, he's making a connection between the, the rapidity, the speed at which he'd be able to see them, and the earnestness or the volume of their prayers. That's a whole nother discussion. I know Christians have differing views about the efficacy of prayer, but I just, I found this little verse and it has encouraged me to say, it seems that God is using people's prayer to accomplish his will on earth. The reason why I'm belaboring this is I'm just going to say that back in September, mid-September, got an email from Danny Jack. He says that we are going to be the, the, the partner focus uh, coming up and to send a, a list of prayer requests. And so the first couple, you know, the ones that you probably get every month from every partner, you know, um, wisdom, uh, leadership, vision. And then, and then as the, the cursor was blinking on my email, I, I, I decided to say like, you know, my daughter is having a hard time at school, you know? She goes to a very small school. There's about, like, six girls her age. And they just decided over the summer that, like, Rosie's not cool anymore. And... And there's so many, like, bad things in the world right now. But, like, um, but this, is, this is big uh, to, to me. Rosie's a very smart, very dialed-in uh, person. And so, of course, she, she notices it. And she's kind of, like, caught in this exclusion, sorry, this circle of, like, exclusion and teasing. And, like, one of them, kind of the ringleader. I don't want to say her name because this is broadcast. But, like, um, <laughs> You know, it's kind of gotten into her head, like, you know, like, Rosie doesn't believe in science, and the rest of us do, and so, like, you know, uh, you know, making kind of, like, monkey noises all the time whenever she's around. Just, like, this, like, scent, like, girls could be so mean. You know, I thought boys were bad. Girls could be so mean. Um, and so, for most of this year, she's, like, spent her lunch times, like, by herself. And, um, again, so many bad things in the world, but, like, I just, this one is so so deep. Um, so she spends lunchtime by herself, by herself and, uh, and then you prayed. And then like the next day, this like group of older kids said, hey, do you want to play basketball with us? And then like, I'm always so nervous, like at the end of the day, like, you know, when I get home from, from the office and I'm always, hey, Rosie, how are things? How was school today? And it's usually something bad, you know? And she's like, the older kids want to play basketball with me. And I thought, that's great. And then the next day, it was the same, and then the next day. And I, I, I wanted to be wise. I waited to see, like, is this kind of a, is this an ongoing thing? And then on Thursday, 
after I heard like the fourth good day in a row. I said, you know what? Remember that church that we went to? Remember Olive Branch Christian Fellowship? They prayed for you. She's like, a church prayed for me? So thank you. The reason why I wanted to come today was so that I could just like say thank you. And this sermon is all just an excuse for me to, to say this. <laughs> now, is there like a complicated, mystical union between the, the prayers that aren't answered and the hidden will of God? Yes, there are. But I just want to say thank you for praying for my daughter. I really appreciate it. On her behalf, I just want to say thank you. So prayer is more than just good vibes, as I said, but the prayer is, is effective. It's confusing, but it also is effective. And so we go back to our sentence. We, we are praying for the beleaguered and for the embattled. Why? Well, the reason why is because we have a trustworthy God. That's kind of our next idea, the, the trustworthiness of God. Did you see that in verse 7? It's saying that everybody everywhere trusts in something. Did you notice that? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So each of us are placing our trust in something, even physically right now. Each of you is, is assuming that the chair that you're sitting on is, you know, capable of holding your weight. And uh, people got here early and they set up those chairs uh, for you. And you believe that no one is like pulling a prank on you. And there's not like some, some hidden screw that's been, like you're trusting that it's there. And you haven't even thought about how you're leaning your, your back and your lower back. You haven't thought about that at all until like 10 seconds ago once I mentioned it. And now all of a sudden you're aware of like, yes, I am resting my body on this. So that's trust. It's saying I, I don't have the evidence to know that this can support me, but I just believe that it can. So what's it mean to trust in the name of the Lord our God? Well, I guess the opposite is that some trust in horses and chariots. So what does that mean? Well, it's the ancient equivalent of like military might and prowess. And the Bible has this like consistent warning against kings and rulers amassing large collections of horses. You ever notice that? It's not like the major theme of the Bible, but it's a consistent one. Let's journey through some Old Testament verses, will we? Deuteronomy 17 this is um, before Israel even had a king. This is as they're on the edge of the promised land, about to go in. Moses is giving like, in the future, he says, you're going to have a king. And this is what that king should be like. This is kind of the job description, the character qualifications of a king. We have a, a slide for Deuteronomy 17. He says, the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire more horses, because God says you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. I like this part. He's like, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers. And, and then it goes on. But it's like, okay, here's the qualifications. First and foremost, not too many horses. 
And then it goes into other stuff about like being like a man of the God's word and, and humility. But number one, not too many horses. We go on to Psalm 33, the next slide. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Hmm. Psalm 147. God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. You see, God is not like anti horse, okay? Like he made them, he loves them. He made them, you know, Winnie and Nay and do all those things. Guess, you know what I learned just the other day? My sister is a very influential horse girl TikTok influencer. I just learned about that. If anyone's like into horses and TikTok, I'm neither. Let me know afterwards and you can subscribe to my sister's funny horse TikTok videos. Anyway, so God is not ant. sorry, that was, God is not anti-horse, but he will oppose anything that we place our hope in versus him. Not out of insecurity, but out of deep love for us. He loves you too much to let you successfully place your hope in anything other than or less than the ultimate good, which is him and him alone. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And so God says to place your hope in the true hope for salvation. And there's a verse that's uh, famous and beloved by some of us, Zechariah 4, 6. It says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. There's not the physical strength of a horse or the security of a chariot, but it's the spirit of God in which we're to trust in and he will work. As a young man, King David learned, it doesn't matter how big your army is or how vast your resources are. All that matters is, is the Lord on your side or not? He learned that when he was very young. And guess what? Goliath learned it on that very same day. What's the significance for us? Some of us are like, well, I have horses back home. What am I supposed to do with them? <laughs> Shall I offer them up to the Lord as a sacrifice? No, keep your horses. That's fine. Here's the thing. We should use money but not trust in it. We can gain education, but not ultimately rely on it. We can cultivate like meaningful relationships within our peers, in our various careers and fields, but like we know that our hope for salvation isn't resting on how networked we are in our field. Uh, we're thankful to, to live by good hospitals and to have like medical professionals around. But ultimately, we know that God is the author of life and he's going to preserve us and uphold us. And our lives are in his hands, not our own. So in King David's day, it's one thing to use chariots and horses in battle. It's another thing to trust in them. Same with money, same with everything else. Uh, Dane Ortland puts it this way. We should use money shrewdly yet not entrust ourselves to it as our final security. God alone is able to bear the weight of our fullest and deepest trust. God alone will never let us down when we place our full weight of trust in him. In Christ, he proved it. This is the God who's worthy of our trust. And now with like the final verse, you notice that? Verse nine, O Lord, save the king. These people are rooting for David to win. And it's not just because they're like optimistic people 
They don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement. They're not just like always nice to everybody. And it isn't because David's just so gosh darn lovable, because he's not all the time. They say, we just need our king to win this victory. It's an affirmation of their dependence upon another. These Israelites, they need a victorious king. Do you know what's in vogue right now? Cynicism. Pessimism. Some people call it realism. But whether it's the church or the state, it's it's so trending to be cynical of any or every type of leadership. And, And there are multiplied dozens of reasons why that makes a lot of sense. Uh, We live in an age of the expose. Uh, We live in the age of journalism, and we have access to a lot of behind-the-scenes information. And so whether it is uh, the tabloid news or whether it's a a podcast about the rise and fall of a popular church, um, it seems like cynicism is warranted. And and you know what else will speak honestly about the, the inner lives of powerful leaders in church and state? this book. (laughs) There's nothing that's going to be more honest about the inner lives and the inner failings of leaders in church and state than the Bible itself. But these Israelites, they're not standing back with their arms crossed like in a cool, apathetic, Gen Z cynicism, or millennial, or boomer, or um, what's the one before that? The greatest. Gen X, the forgotten generation, and the greatest generation who got to name themselves. (laughs) They understood that it's not great to hope for the defeat of their king. They don't want to be aloof about this. And it's not because of just this general sense of like altruistic optimism. There's this awareness that we're 100% on the same team. Uh, Here's how Yolanda Norton puts it. She says, the faithful people of God are interceding for their praying king because they know that their destiny is wrapped up in his destiny. His loss is their loss. His victory is their victory. This is why they shout for joy over his victory and declare, we shall rise and stand upright while the adversaries collapse and fall. People know that their anointed king, David, is their representative. Let's be be clear. If he wins the battle, they win the battle. If he loses the battle, they lose. They're linked together with their leader. This is an Old Testament principle. We see this worked out throughout the pages of the Old Testament. A lot of times the victories and defeats are tied with the personal lives or lapses of faith of kings. This is also something that we saw in 2020. I don't want to get political, um, but there are different ways that different leaders handled the crisis that we lived through. The, The leaders of Ireland decided that we should have the longest and most intense lockdown in all of Europe. The people who are in charge of Florida made certain decisions about how to handle it. The people that are in charge of California made certain decisions about how to manage it. And then even we go on to different levels of like local leadership and government. But we see that the lives of people are impacted for better or for worse. And I'm not making any comments about whether it's better to be in Florida or California or Ireland. Um, I'm just saying this is a principle that because of some decisions, 
other people are impacted and live with the consequences, for better or for worse. But this isn't only just a sociological observation. This is how God's universe runs. You see, God set up the human race, and we had a king. And our first king was named Adam. And Adam, well, he fell in a garden. And when he fell, we all fell. His loss on the battlefield of temptation is ruination and devastation for everyone who is connected to him. He's our federal head, and his defeat was our defeat. So here's what God does. God sends a new king, somebody that the book of Romans calls the second Adam, and he is going to be tempted and he's not going to give in. He's going to go to war against the ultimate enemy of Satan and sin and death, and he will win. You can glance at Psalm 20 while I read this. He will be sent help from the sanctuary, verse 2. In verse 1, he's the one who's going to be answered in the day of his trouble. Look at verse 8. Adam will collapse and fall, but Christ will rise and stand upright. And the Lord will save his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and with the saving might of his right hand. Verse 6. And that victory is our victory. One theologian puts it this way. The transference of Adam's sin and guilt to us will be covered by the crediting of Christ's righteousness to those who believe. So that means that for us, we have a king. We have an anointed one who went to battle on our behalf. And he, with the empowerment of the Father and the Spirit, completely trounced our enemy. And his victory is ours. And all that is his, he now shares with us. And that's why we sing. That's why we celebrate. We've been brought out of the dominion of death and darkness into forgiveness, justification, light, and eventual glory. And so what have we seen so far? We're praying to a trustworthy God on behalf of the beleaguered and embattled brothers and sisters. Uh, we, we are able to pray for others because we have a God who helps. We pray for our friends because they stumble and fall, and God hears and God cares. But more than anything, we remember with the greatest confidence that we have is being connected to the king who fell once and then rose forever, forever blessed. I'm going to pray now, and I'm actually going to read a prayer for you. And so please, in like a posture of receptivity, just listen as I read this prayer out. Verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, the Lord our God. Heavenly Father, the battle for our heart's treasure and trust is relentless, vicious, and diverse. As this day begins and continues, we affirm that you alone are worthy of our worship, love, and trust. In David's day, your competition included chariots and horses. In our day, 
the battle for our hearts includes so many competitors. Some trust in their spouse's attention, their children's achievements, or their lover's affections. But we trust in your steadfast love and great delight for us in Jesus. Some trust in their goodness, discipline, and niceness. But we trust in the finished work of Jesus and the gift of his perfect righteousness. Some trust in their stock portfolios, bank apps, and real estate. But we trust in the unsearchable riches of Christ and the inviolate inheritance kept for us in heaven. Some trust in their vanity, health, and sensuality, but in sickness and in health, in our youthfulness and in our aging, we trust in the truly beautiful and all-powerful one, Jesus. Some trust in nuclear weapons, international alliances, and political power, but we trust in Jesus, the King of kings, the ruler of the kings of the earth, and in his unshakable kingdom. Some trust in being included in special groups, circles, and cliques, but we trust in our union with Christ, intimacy with you, Abba Father, and our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Some trust in their vocational productivity and their place in the org chart, but we trust in the one who's making all things new and in our place in your heart. Some trust in their meds and self-soothing, in their uppers and downers, but we trust in the one who says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Only Jesus can heal and free us. Some trust in being smart, wise, and right all the time. But we trust in Jesus, who is our wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so we pray this in his merciful and magnificent name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.